Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Today, Hamilton's new city manager is expected to be unveiled this week. What do we know so far? There was yet another cabinet shuffle, this time to fill the vacancy left by Jane Philpott. And also, it's budget day tomorrow for the federal government. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Word is, uh, as you heard on our program the other day when Hamilton Mayor Fred Eisenberg was with us, that uh, they have announced, or they have not announced, but they have chosen a new city manager here for the city of Hamilton. Uh, it's been a while since this search has been going on. Uh, the process itself is the one, the thing that seems to be drawing the most flack here, the way that they've actually gone through this. And, uh, well, I guess no matter what, uh, somebody's going to be unhappy with the choice when it finally comes up. John Best, who is the uh, publisher of the Bay Observer, joins us here on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about this. Morning, John. How are you doing today? Just great, Bill. Thank you. Good. Listen, the, the speculation is that this actually might be a, a, a female that has been selected for this position, uh, which would be the first time that would ever happen, would have happened here in the city of Hamilton. But I, I wanted to talk to you because you and I haven't really had much of a discussion about the process, and, and a lot of the councillors, including the mayor, are taking some heat from this. Well, what's your take on how this all went down? Well, I, I kind of agree with, with the criticism. I, I mean, I understand that, that it was, you know, sort of a tradition to... Uh, uh, to uh, put the selection committee together using the mayor and the and the heads of the of the standing committees, um, but you know this council has changed. Uh, we had an election and uh, we we saw some new faces. We we have the most women on council that we've ever had, and um, I I think there there probably were were some other ways that they they could have gone. Um, if it is a woman that's selected, one hopes that. Uh, it is the by far the best candidate because we would really hate to think that it was a reaction to the criticism, but I hope that's not the case. Well, and that's one of the uh, the damned if you do, damned if you don't scenarios here, isn't it? Uh, because of the criticism that was leveled about uh, process and 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 you know what weight was put on what elements of, of each individual application. Uh, you know, if if it's a woman, there are some people I'm sure going to say, "Yeah, you guys just caved into that." That might necessarily not be the best person for the job. I, and we're kind of speaking blind here because we don't know who it is yet. But uh, I think the, the the way the process was handled here is is has really put an awful lot of pressure on the new city manager, whoever it is. That's right, and uh, I would say this uh, that uh, I think the new city manager, whoever it is, and whatever gender uh, the the incumbent turns out to be. Um, is is probably going to have a, a bit of an easier time than Chris Murray did because when when he was appointed city manager it was a, a little bit of a surprise and uh, he inherited a senior management team that probably had three or four people at least uh, that thought they should have had the job so he had to work through that uh, over his ten years and uh, I I would uh, I, I think there's kind of a younger sort of hipper management team there now. And uh, so that may bode well for uh, whoever gets the job. And and again, there's, there's well, there's still going to be that element because my understanding from what the mayor told us uh, the other day, uh, John, is that uh, there were a number of people from within the the existing city staff that applied for this. So there could be well be some some hurt feelings out of this process too. Well, uh, that's always a, a tough uh, situation. I mean, uh, it's. Uh, when you're sort of trying to climb the, the the corporate ladder at the at a, at a political level, there's there's a certain amount of pressure sometimes to apply for the job, uh, even if you don't think that you're necessarily going to get it because it can be seen as career limiting if you don't show interest. So there's a, there's all those dynamics taking place. But 
at the end of the day, I, I just hope that the person that's selected is, is going to be able to manage and, and hopefully improve on the, uh, the political culture at, at Hamilton City Hall because I know Chris Murray tried very hard and he, and he had some success, but I, I still think there's a long way to go to get rid of the, the cronyism and some of the, you know, uh, just generally poor governance that we see there all the time. How are you going to approach that? If that's job one, you know, what's what's the first step? Because I, I agree. I think Chris Murray tried to address that, and uh, and I know that he talked about it an awful lot. But time and time again, John, every time there were there were as surveys done about city staff or by city staff, most of it confidentially, uh, the, the the comfort ratings were were pretty low. I mean, people just didn't seem to be like okay, this whole idea about this being a great place to to live, work, and play. They don't seem to want to work for the city of Hamilton. At least a lot of them didn't anyway. No, I mean, the, the, the studies that we've seen, uh, the surveys show that morale is horrible over there. Um, you know, there's, there's no, no point sugarcoating it. Uh, it, it is uh, uh, a workplace that uh, for many, many people is a toxic workplace. Uh, council either is part of the problem or certainly haven't done anything to, to deal with it. But when, when you see surveys uh, where, where they're, uh, you know, they're anonymous surveys and people can speak uh, their minds, uh, it's it's pretty depressing to look at the uh, at the morale. So somebody, whoever this is going to be, uh, is always walking into a hornet's nest. Then, well, uh, the only thing I would say is I, I'm not sure it's all that different. Uh, I, I think there's something about uh, municipal government uh, that uh, maybe you know we just saw a total. Uh, sea change in Niagara, where the voters rose up and kicked out um, a whole bunch of councillors. But what appeared to be at the root of that was, was again, a, a kind of a cronyism uh, culture that was uh, engendered, uh, you know, staff, uh, people holding down senior staff positions that weren't qualified. Uh, we saw a massive uh, upheaval in Brampton, uh, where they brought in a new city manager and a whole new council, and they fired 50 people. So I, I think there's something inherent in municipal government, to be fair to our city, uh, that, that it seems to be a, a, a difficulty with the, just with the nature of the beast. I want to go back to the process, if I could, John, for just a couple of seconds. Uh, two of the major areas of criticism that we heard anyway were, first of all, being off-site, being out of town for this uh, this whole process uh, and and of course the confidentiality of that which is actually kind of hand in hand because the counselor's uh, rationalization for this whole thing was look at you can't have somebody apply for the job out and what you know the, you know out in the open like this because you know many of these people are employed someplace else already and you want to make sure that they can maintain that just in case they don't get the gig here uh, are you okay are you comfortable with the way that they rolled this thing out and where they did it I, I'm not troubled by the fact that they went off-site. Um, uh, you know, I mean, you, you do have to respect the confidentiality of, of job applicants, and and it, it would be career-limiting for, say, a city manager of a city to be identified as, as having applied for the job. Uh, some things just have to be done confidentially, and I know there's a lot of hoo-ha about it on social media, but I, I don't know why they went to Niagara, because the media staked the place out, and and, and would have been able to see who's coming and going, and unless the, the candidates all checked in at the hotel and maybe stayed there the night before so that they wouldn't be seen going into the building. But uh, at the end of the day, the media were down there, and I apparently they didn't see anybody they recognized. 
So, no, I'm, I'm not troubled by that. I mean, you know, th- those are things that you just have to do when you're, when you're um, looking for a senior person. Uh, they, they have to have the confidence that, that they can apply for the job without, uh, you know, uh, tipping off their employer. What about the other main argument from some of the newer counselors, especially, that they felt excluded from the process? Uh, as one veteran told me uh, off the record, uh, simply said, look, everybody can't be in charge. I mean, there's got to be somebody doing this. And, uh, and of course, that we already know that with the bylaws in place here in the city, as soon as you get a certain number of people at, at any council meeting or at a coffee shop, for that matter, it's, an, it's, a, it's a council meeting as opposed to simply a selection committee. Yeah, they, they let's face it, they were excluded. I mean, the newcomers were excluded because the committee was struck before uh, the new council was sworn in. So now, now whether that was a deliberate snub or whether that, you know, I, I guess if we had a, a better gender and ethnic balance on council, then chances are those, those committee chairs of those standing committees might have reflected that a little better. But uh, it is what it is. Um, I, I think there's probably a lesson here for, for the future when, you know, uh, who knows, uh, some of the people that are now newcomers on council may in fact be those committee chairs uh, three or four years from now, and uh, whenever you, you hope that uh, whoever gets the job will last longer than one council term, but, you know, at, at some point, hopefully, uh, there, there will be a better reflection of the community uh, on that selection committee, but it didn't happen this time, that's for sure. No, it didn't, and I can understand some ruffled feathers, but uh, because by definition, uh, they excluded the new members, and and you know we, because they when they said, look, it's going to be the committee chairs that are going to make uh, this this committee up, and, uh, and no rookie I, that I can recall in all the years I've been watching city politics, no rookie has ever been the chairman of one of those standing committees right off the bat. Uh, just does usually happen. So, but as soon as they said it's it's going to be the chairs, you knew it was going to be just a bunch of veterans that were going to do this. That's right. So even if the committee had been struck after after the new council was sworn in, the the result would have been the same. Uh, I, you know, uh, on the other hand, Maria Pearson uh, is, was on the committee, and uh, I think most people view her as a, as a sensible, hardworking counselor. So, uh, you know, I, I hope this doesn't reflect poorly on her. Um, you know, I think she's she would certainly, uh, you know, give good counsel to her colleagues on that committee. Do we move on from here? I mean, there's been an awful lot of acrimony, of course, about among counselors, among staff and counselors right now. Uh, and you talked about staff morale, and that's obviously going to be one of the key issues, and I'm sure that was talked about during the interview process. But can we turn the page? I, I mean, can you technically start with a clean slate and just say, okay, let's go from here, or are there too many deep wounds right now that need to be dealt with? It all starts at the top. Uh, at the end of the day, council's got to provide the leadership, and, and I think if, uh, if we look at Chris Murray and his attempts to change the political culture, uh, part of the reason why he didn't get the, the, the amount of success that he, that he might have got uh, was because uh, you're, you're trying to lead council when council really needs to lead the process. And it's pretty hard to um, install a, a, a new culture uh, among employees of the city if there's still uh, uh, employees that feel they have to check with councillors before they do routine tasks. Uh, and, and that kind of stuff is still going on. Um, you're never going to get rid of it completely, but uh, I, I hope the incumbent uh, at least gets a chance to uh, address those issues. But part of it is, a big part of it is going to be the way council approaches uh, the, the new individual. And hopefully, again, we, we do have some fresh faces on council. Hopefully they can uh, drive the process a little more, because certainly the previous council didn't. 
Well, you were talking about longevity of and whoever is going to be selected, just how long they may stay here. Uh, do we have a problem here? I mean, this is a city that has was incorporated, of course, in, in the year 2000, so the amalgamation. Uh, we've gone through a number of city managers in that period of time. Is that usual? I don't know. Uh, it seems like uh, we, we know that uh, one or two left uh, involuntarily um, or, or just said to hell with it and left. Um, it, it, you know, uh, I, think, I think Chris Murray kind of broke that chain by, by surviving, and I think that's probably the word, uh, surviving for 10 years. Um, so hopefully we're back on a more stable path. Uh, in, in, I, I think a lot of those early, um, you know, those, those early departures were in part uh, brought about by the tensions from amalgamation as well. So um, I guess uh, we'll just have to wait and see, Bill. Well, and it comes back to this old definition, and I know we've used this time and time again, but I think it's still very apt, uh, is rowing and steering. I mean, who's who's doing the rowing and who's doing the steering as the good ship Hamilton goes down the road here? Uh, and we're not sure because that seemed to be a pretty blurred line a lot of the time. I think it's still a blurred line. I, I talked to a, a business executive um, just uh, on the weekend who, who told me a tale of... Uh, uh, his company appeared before a committee of council to get a, a minor zoning variation. It wasn't even a zoning vari- variation. It was just a, a procedural variation. Um, it went through the committee, uh, but one member of council uh, whose ward the, uh, the place uh, was um, objected strongly. Uh, and even though the committee uh, allowed the thing, um, they later learned that they had to go back and, and kind of mollify the counselor after after the committee had made its decision and and it instructed staff and I, I'd like to think that's an isolated incident, but I think it's probably routine. Uh, probably happens a lot more than we'll ever hear about uh, because a lot of those discussions and negotiations really go on behind closed doors, uh, yeah. and that's what starts I think some of the tension between staff and, and counselors. Uh, you know, because staff will make a recommendation based on the parameters, the Planning Act, for instance, if it's something like what you're just describing. Uh, but the councillors sometimes have their own agenda. Well, it's, uh, it's right. And, and I think in, in Hamilton, uh, I, I think everybody has a combination of rowing and steering. But the, the, the problem is uh, we're going back to whoever is the city manager is very hard to lead um, if there are uh, dual or multiple sources of accountability. Um, you know, if you're going to appoint a city manager, you should appoint someone that you have enough confidence that you can let them let them do their job and uh, and back them up. But uh, I, there's 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 members, there's uh, people that are on staff that that are actually go to staff for for counselors, and and there are counselors who are kind of go to counselors for certain staff, and and that's where the uh, kind of the rot starts to creep into the system and. That's what makes it so difficult for a senior manager to try to control all that. Uh, when we talked to the mayor about this the other day, I know we're just about out of time, uh, he suggested, obviously, that there's going to be an in-camera meeting, I guess, with staff to, and, and counselors to talk about the, the final choice here. But it would be the 27th, he said, of the end of the month before they actually made this public. Well, you want a little side bet here that that doesn't last that long? Well, uh, I, I don't know. I mean, I mean, I think it's really important now that now that the decision has apparently been taken. I think it's it's really important that the new uh, person be introduced in as effective a way as possible. And if that means uh, you know waiting an extra three or four days to you know to perform the introduction, I think we'll all survive.
Well, with all the leaks at City Hall, we'll see what happens. John, as always, thanks so much. Appreciate the time today. My pleasure, Bill. John Best, uh, publisher of the Bay Observer. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Just uh, a few minutes ago up in Ottawa, uh, another cabinet shuffle, mini one this time around, really just one position that needed to be filled. Uh, and uh, Prime Minister did fill it with, uh, as expected, uh, Vancouver Member of Parliament Joyce Murray, who is now the uh, President of the Treasury Board. Joining us to talk about this is Christo Avalos, uh, Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council postdoctoral fellow in history, of course, at uh, the University of Toronto. Christo, thanks for the time. Good to have you with us today. Thanks for having me. Right off the top, uh, what are your thoughts about uh, Ms. Murray entering Cabinet? Uh, good pick? I mean, you know, it's 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 not a bad pick, and I think that's what this was really about. I mean, it was about not not no more own goals, if you will, uh, going into the election. And I think it, it serves the purpose uh, the purpose well for a few factors. One, as as you kind of hint that, that you know, regionality is very important. You want to make sure that as much as is possible, given you know where your MPs are, that you have major cities represented and all the regions represented. And with Jody Wilson-Raybould sort of leaving cabinet. That means that, you know, the B.C. contingent was a bit light. So it made sense they went back to to uh, to British Columbia for that pick. Um, Murray is a, you know, a relatively long serving liberal uh, elected in the kind of mid late 2000s. Um, she was one of Justin Trudeau's challengers in the uh, leadership race. So perhaps this is a sign he's looking to reach out to people who may have different visions than him, at least in part. And I think it's kind of crucial that whereas his last mini shuffle just moved around people within cabinet for the most part. This is sort of elevating one of the backbenchers, for lack of a better term, in the cabinet, and that might be seen as a, a sign to outreach towards those people. Whereas, you know, there are now two new backbenchers, uh, Phil Pot and Jody Wilson-Raybould, who maybe have a less than, than stellar view of the current cabinet leadership. So maybe this is a morale boost to the to the backbench. Christo, how important is it to have unanimity in, in a cabinet? Uh, this obviously is, is as you say, a, an, a, an outside voice. I mean, she's not been in cabinet, at least not this cabinet anyway, previously. Uh, but uh, she's got some issues with some of the policies that have developed. She was she was against the uh, the okay of the pipeline project up in uh, the northern part of the province, of course. And the, obviously, the prime minister is trying to get that thing going. It's the a possibility of some friction here with another cabinet minister now. I mean, potentially. I mean, part of these things are just the political realities of riding by riding politics. Justin Trudeau is trying to pass a policy that he feels serves um, his political interests on a federal level, and maybe he thinks that the pipeline could play a role in that. Yet, if you're an MP from certain parts of British Columbia or certain parts of Quebec or frankly certain parts of Ontario, pipelines and things of that sort are deeply unpopular. So you'll have to perhaps de-emphasize the position, if not take one in discordance with the party. And I think as long as people understand that, you know, these things are driven by the fact that, you know, you have to win uh, 338 individual elections, you have to win as many of them as you can, that sometimes politicians will differ. Now, in cabinet, generally, the philosophy is that, you know, it's not cabinet unanimity so much within cabinet, but once a decision is made, generally everybody falls in line. So the, the, the hypothetically, at least, uh, you can have severe disagreements both within caucus and cabinet, but especially within cabinet. Once a decision has been made, generally everyone must support that decision, or they have to look seriously about whether they can serve in cabinet or not. And I think this is part of the reason why both Wilson Raybould and and Jane Philpott resigned from cabinet um, because they, you know, ultimately when a decision was made, when actions were taken, they couldn't stand by those actions, and maybe they feel they can serve as liberals because because backbenchers have a bit more leeway 
in their ability to critique the government, um, maybe they find that's a mid-space. And I think that having a, a voice in cabinet that will sort of, you know, play ball when, when the decisions are made is, is extremely vital, uh, at least as our system operates now. And I'm just wondering, you know, obviously we're heading to an election in October. Uh, is it important for them to show that sense of unanimity that they're, that they're all on the same page? No, I think, I think it is um, right now. I think a lot of people are, are, are rocked right now. A lot of liberal activists maybe are worried, you know, the sort of people that, that get the volunteers out and get the money out and get the, you know, the stamps lift and the phone calls made. Those people need to have a morale boost because I think the last few weeks have been really hard on those people. Some of them maybe are torn. Do they support Justin Trudeau? Do they support Jody Wilson-Raybould? Maybe they support both for different reasons. Um, so those people are, are probably having a tough time. And, and having a cabinet that is behind the prime minister, I think, is a boon to the party brass. And I think that was the reason that, you know, after Phil Potts' resignation, you know, uh, uh, I believe all of the cabinet or most of the cabinet signed these kind of letters of, of uh, affirming their support to Justin Trudeau, which is not at all normal. That is not at all a normal action to take. But I think it was one taken with this view to say that, look, these people have left. You know, they made their decision. But the rest of us, uh, you know, we, we support the prime minister. We're happy to be in the cabinet. And I think in terms of politics, that's quite important. Because, again, you know, you're going to be dealing with all sorts of issues. Um, the opposition parties will be coming at you. You know, politics is going to happen. But if there's a recession or a mini recession, all of these challenges are something that Justin Trudeau is going to have to deal with. He doesn't therefore need to deal with internal strife in addition to the things that he can't directly control. Interestingly enough, though, and, and let's face it, you know, they've, they've had some bad press. Some, that's an understatement, obviously, over the last couple of weeks. Uh, and that's been reflected in a couple of the uh, polls that have been released. But are you surprised, Christo, that in just about all of those polls, uh, the NDP don't seem to be gaining any traction at all? In other words, they don't seem to be benefiting from the hard times the Liberals have been under. I mean, the, the Conservatives have gone up a little bit, of course, but, and, and they're slightly ahead of the Liberals in most of the polls now. But uh, well, the, NDP, actually, the NDP are still there. Well, no, well, actually, though, if you look at Manos' recent offering, it shows quite the opposite. The NDP has, has gone up sharply in Ontario. Uh, the NDP's support amongst men, according to Nanos, in the last four weeks has doubled. So in a month, the NDP's support of men has doubled. Now, NDP's support amongst men is relatively low at this point, but it has doubled in support. Um, according to Eric Grenier's uh, poll tracker at the CBC, he's actually indicated that at first it did indeed look like the majority of this was going to the Conservatives, but actually, uh, over time, it looks like the NDP has gained statistically significant support. So it looks like in a sense, both the NDP and the Conservatives have gained in different ways here. Now, it, it ultimately means with the NDP that they are further bit behind, um, so more needs to be gained. But right now, I think it's a, a you know it's a decent scenario for the NDP. If the election was to happen today and the results were to be counted today, you know the NDP would be a net negative in seats, which is of course never ideal. But importantly, there would be a minority government, likely where they could form a coalition with Trudeau. And the NDP has noted, for instance, that. Um, in exchange for a coalition support, they would require the implementation of electoral reform. And if the NDP was to achieve that, that would be one of their long-term political objectives. So, you know, in some ways, the scenario has played out reasonably well for them, where neither the Conservatives nor the Liberals appear in a position to grab a majority, at least right now. The leadership's obviously got a big part of this, and I would imagine that the, the good news, quote-unquote, story here is that, uh, of course, Jagmeet Singh won his by-election. Uh, it would have been disastrous, I think, not just for him, but for the party, had that not happened. No, no, certainly. I mean, I think that it was probably, um, well, certainly for Jagmeet, I, 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 do, I do think that, 
you know, whether or not he would have been forced out, I think it would have been hard for him to stay on uh, had he not won. But I think it was a, it was an important victory, and it was a victory that I think beat a lot of people's expectations, the size of it. A lot of people were projecting he would win, but somewhere in the 5% range. But his win was uh, so substantive that he uh, saw massive uh, declines in liberal support, liberal support falling by about 10%, indicating that Jagmeet is eating into liberal ground, at least in English Canada. And, and you're going to see some of that in places like Toronto and in Vancouver and other urban centers in English Canada. Quebec is still uh, yet, we, we yet to be seen. Um, in terms of having him in the House, it's certainly going to be helpful. Um, there's not very much time left for him to be in the House, because as you know, we're looking at a fall election to be likely, but you know, given the summer break, we only really have a few more weeks of Parliament before, um, before that election really happens. But these are consequential weeks to be in Parliament. We have the SNC-Lavalin scandal, which uh, I don't think is done. We have the budget, which is coming. We have uh, the continued potential squabbles between Trudeau and some of his backbenchers. Um, all of these things are, are things that will keep the media focused at Parliament, at 24 Sussex, and will give Jagmeet Singh a sort of second chance to introduce himself to Canadians. So I think it's a good opportunity. And, and obviously, both he and Andrew Scheer, I, we have a common goal here of trying to keep the Lavalin situation front and center. Uh, the government's going to do a budget tomorrow, and that's all coincidentally the same time that that Justice Committee is going to meet once again. I think this one's behind closed doors, though, to decide how they want to proceed or if they want to proceed going further. Uh, that would seem to me to be almost as big, if not a bigger story, than the budget itself. No, I think that's certainly the case. I think that you know, rather cynically, and this is, I, I believe, a pre-scheduled meeting, but rather cynically, I think the, 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 the majority of that committee, which is, again, it's a committee where a majority of the seats belong to the Liberals. I believe they have five of the nine votes on the, on the, on the committee, so they can effectively control it through their, through their caucus, um, have decided that they're going to make a decision and have a discussion about Jody Wilson-Raybould, whether or not she'll come back, or, or other speakers, whether or not they'll, they'll testify to the committee, uh, make that decision on budget day. I think the intent, frankly, was to try to bury that amongst the budget news, because as you know, the coverage of the budget is amongst the, the most important things you'll see in Canadian politics outside of an actual election in many cases. It's just it, it generates so much coverage from, from business news, from, poli- from political news, from all sorts of, of venues. Um, but it seems like in this case, it's almost, I don't know if it'll fully backfire, but I think that you know people aren't happy about the, the, the timing. I think media, for instance, not not even on a partisan reality. I don't think they like being jerked around, and I think that in some ways, you know, media already have a busy day here, and I think out of spite they might give this more coverage. There is some indication that the Conservatives are going to try to delay the budget, in a sense, if they try to uh, quash SNC-Lavalin uh, hearings and things like this and try to hide information. So I think that, you know, while the budget day might pull a little bit away from this Jody Wilson-Label discussion at the committee, I feel like the story is a big deal, and I feel like the opposition won't let up, and I feel that the media realizes the story is a big deal, and you know they'll try their best to divide coverage between the actual budget and the and the the, the justice committee uh, closed down meeting. Well, especially in light of the fact that uh, we keep going back to this because it's so important. I mean, the election coming up in the in the fall in October of this year. Uh, this will be the last budget, the last opportunity, I'm, and I already know the opposition members are already trying to characterize this as just really just their party platform for the upcoming election, which I guess in a way it is, but I, I would imagine we're going to get into more budget discussions, I guess, when we get to, to tomorrow. 
But uh, this is an opportunity for for the Liberals to actually start handing stuff out, and, and as, as all governments do in election years right now. So, I mean, it may just, uh, it's going to be an interesting battle to see just where the public consciousness is and the public's attention is tomorrow. No, certainly. I mean, the government, they have a couple goals here. One, as you know, like, there is this uh, opportunity with, you know, a budget to sort of turn the page on the previous scandals, almost like a refresh period. It, it may be a way to drown out the decision of the, the Jody Wilson-Raybould, whether or not she'll testify, when she'll testify, how she'll testify. It may serve that purpose. But as you know, in general, you know, in a majority government, especially where we have a kind of more definitive understanding of when governments end, usually this last budget before the election is a sort of the introduction, the preamble to the platform. We saw it from Kathleen Wynne in Ontario, um, where she tried to, as you know, um, you know, expand the budget to try to reach out to certain groups to try to win their vote. It didn't work in that case, but in, in, in some ways that was her platform. If you look at what the Liberals eventually released as a platform during the election, it was largely an adherence to the budget they released earlier that spring. Um, so you'll see the same thing here, I, I think. And I think that it's important because this will, one, set the tone for the criticism of, of, by the opposition going forward. So, for instance, you might see some sort of pharmacare mentioned in this. I'm not necessarily convinced, but I'm quite confident it won't be a universal single-payer pharmacare system. So that will give Jagmeet Singh a chance to attack. Conversely, you might argue that if Trudeau in this budget projects you know, higher spending or if he, you know, uh, you know, it, it leads to deficits, you might see Andrew Scheer, whether or not his plan would, would actually address the same issue, you, you could see Andrew Scheer really try to seize in on, on that because he has a lot of support uh, from, from budget hawks, if you will. So that this is going to be a key moment in the, the last stretch of this parliament. As as far as Jagmeet Singh is concerned, though, he got sworn in, of course, so he'll be there as parliament reopens after a two-week break uh, today. But the the, mem- the leader of the third party doesn't really have a whole lot of uh, weight to swing around, uh, in, especially in question period. Uh, that, that's I guess he's probably going to have to make most of his noise and most of his points outside in the uh, the scrums outside the hall. No, I think that's 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 certainly part of it. I mean, the third party leader does have sway. I mean, Justin Trudeau didn't spend a whole lot of time in Parliament when he was third leader, but you know his questions did get aired. His questions did get coverage from the corner of the house where the where the third party often sits. Um, so there will be coverage, but as you know, the, the, the kind of key focus is often on, you know, the leader of the opposition squaring off face-to-face with the prime minister if the prime minister happens to be there. And I think that is the kind of main show. But I think having him in parliament, and, and which, which will be, one, giving him that, that coverage when you know, power in politics or question period on, on CTV or what have you, and they show the clips of, of, of question period, he'll be there. And two, it means that his focus is more squarely on the kind of political situation in Ottawa, whereas when he was fighting for that by-election, he was sort of divided between, you know, the general party building on the one hand and the uh, Ottawa, the Parliament Hill situation on the other, and then his own by-election on the other other hand. Now I think that at the very least he can focus on, on, on the parliamentary efforts a little bit more closely. Uh, and, and obviously try to underscore, I guess, uh, the leadership capabilities. I mean, he's under a lot of criticism, or has been anyway, uh, for you know making some well some people would call them questionable decisions about caucus and well the fact that uh, as uh, David Aking from Global News was reporting over the weekend uh, I think it's thirty two percent Christo of of the current members of the NDP caucus are not running for re-election that's rather surprising I mean it, it's surprising in a sense 
But you have to look at a few of the factors. A couple of those people have made successful moves to other offices where, you know, they, they, they're, they're still within a kind of general NDP fold. We have a new mayor of Vancouver and a new uh, B.C. cabinet minister, essentially, uh, who have made those decisions. And many of these people are older. You have folks like Linda Duncan, um, uh, you know, MP from Edmonton, who will, I believe, is in her late 60s now and certainly will be in her 70s by the time, you know, the next parliament wraps up. You have people like Christofferson in Hamilton, who is stepping aside, yes, but he's, you know, leaving it in the capable hands, I feel, of somebody like Matthew Green, uh, you know, like the current Hamilton city councilor. So in some ways, people are, are, are critical of the NDP for allowing new blood to come in, but we talk about this in politics all the time. We want new, exciting voices that represent young people in politics. But that can't happen if, if the old folks sometimes don't step aside. So I think that, you know, you're damned if you do, damned if you don't. I think this is primarily an NDP, uh, an opportunity for the NDP to showcase new blood. And I don't know if it's necessarily uh, a major concern that it's being played out, played out to be. It seemed as if a lot of the concern here uh, was was about the leadership. I mean, people like Nathan Cullen, etc., who who has, is you know moving on now after being in the party for quite some time as well. But that seemed to be uh, a lot of it, uh, British Columbia centric, and 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 maybe those waters have been settled now. Maybe everything seems to be fine within the caucus. Well, you know, with, with Cullen in particular, there's a few factors. One, he was a a Singh supporter. He endorsed Jagmeet Singh during the leadership race, and has kind of been a, a key supporter of Singh. Um, Singh choosing to run in BC is a very clear decision that he feels it was a position where he could, one, where there was a seat open to run in, but two, a, a place where he can find support for his vision, especially on things like housing, which, of course, as you know, is a, is a major issue in, in urban British Columbia. But it, it, you know, with Colin, I think it was really a, 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 just a factor of his position in life. I mean, if you look at Colin, he's not an old guy, certainly not, but he has children, um, you know, uh, young children, we would like to spend time with, and given where his riding is, I don't know if people understand, his riding is in the kind of in the northwestern part of British Columbia, and excepting maybe the Yukon MP, um, he, there's nobody who has to travel further to Ottawa to get to Parliament and back. And so in some ways, this is a, a move that I think is more for his family and has less to do with the actual politics. Uh, and this is indicated by the fact that you know he may enter BC politics, we've heard, which has nothing to do with, you know, the, the BC NDP versus the federal NDP, and simply because, well, you know, his commute would be far less grueling. Well, it's going to be interesting to see just how this turns out over the next little while. This is going to be a very exciting week as they get back to work in Ottawa. Christo, thanks so much for the time and for your perspective on this. Take care. Christo Avalis, of course, from the uh, University of Toronto. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Tomorrow is budget day. Uh, parliamentarians are back to work today after a two-week break. And tomorrow afternoon at about 4 o'clock, Finance Minister Bill Morneau will rise in the Commons and deliver, uh, well, the last budget this government's going to do before the election comes up in October. So it's pretty important stuff. Every budget is, obviously, but lots of speculation about just might, what might just be included in this thing. Uh, with the budget, too, uh, some suggesting high-speed uh, Canada-wide Internet. Uh, but what about businesses? What, what kind of uh, motive uh, are they going to try to move forward here to get the businesses moving and uh, get the economy humping, as uh, any government wants to do as they start going into an election? Joining us to talk about what we may hear from the finance minister tomorrow is uh, Monique Moreau, Vice President of National Affairs with the Canadian Federation of Independent Businesses. Uh, Monique, thank you so much for the time. Good to have you with us today. 
Thanks, Bill. Good to be here. Let's let's uh, speculate if we could just a little bit about what we might see tomorrow. It's uh, good news. Budget is is really the mantra, I guess, for any government heading down the road towards an election right now. But uh, what do we need to see to make that happen? Well, from a small business perspective, really the focus bill needs to be on reducing some of the increased costs that they've been facing. Uh, the CPP has gone up this year. There's carbon tax increases in many, many provinces, including in Ontario. And some small business owners are telling us they're also struggling to fill vacancies or having a hard time finding people to work the jobs they need. So those would be our key measures that we're focusing on uh, tomorrow. Well, let's talk a little bit about those impacts. And, and obviously the carbon tax uh, that you've mentioned was, was one of the, the pillars of their, their platform, and they have moved forward on that right now. What are you hearing from your members, uh, Monique, about how it, what, the impact that it's having on small business? At this point, Bill, they're telling us, look, we've done everything we can. The environment is important to many small business owners, and they've taken the measures that were available to them, but they don't have any more money to be putting towards a carbon tax. And many members told us that they are going to be challenged to pass on the cost to consumers, which is the idea behind this whole thing. So really what we're asking for the government is to firstly stop implementing the carbon tax, but if they do go ahead, that they do implement offsetting measures for small businesses that are easy to access so that if they do want to replace a boiler or a refrigeration unit, that it doesn't involve a big red tape bureaucratic process to get out some of that money. Uh, so obviously assistance, right? Because that's, the, you know, that's the where it's going to have the most impact. So we're looking at situations like this. Do you have a chance uh, before to actually have some input into this? I mean, do they reach out to organizations like yourselves and said, what can we do for you? On the carbon tax, we have been meeting with the minister uh, fairly frequently, trying to communicate the views of small business owners, saying to them, firstly, that they don't have any money left uh, in their pockets at this point to be passing on uh, or to be taking on some of these extra costs. Uh, they always, you know, tend to forget uh, governments do that. There's only one taxpayer, even though there's three levels of government. And so that's something we're often trying to remind them, that the governments don't work, uh, you know, co- a coordinated way to reduce costs for business owners. Certainly, we've been asking them to think about making sure that any programming they do offer or if there is going to be um, some of that money that they're planning on returning to small businesses gets to them in a really quick and easy way. So that, that's obviously going to be of prime importance. What about putting money into the pockets of the consumers themselves? Is, is that something that you'd be looking for, something that you'd like to see from the government here? Well, we certainly know, at least on the carbon tax, that's already happening. That's what the climate action incentive is for. Yeah. I know in Ontario, I think it's supposed to be a couple hundred bucks per family. So, And big businesses have their own um, exemptions through the um, programming that's available to them. So what we're really trying to do is bring some fairness back to this issue, making sure that small business owners are looked after, too. So with that in mind, uh, I'm going to go back about two years uh, when there was a federal budget being delivered, and, uh, and one of the, the main focus of, of that budget was, uh, was uh, tax reform for small businesses. And if I recall, Monique, it didn't go well. Uh, you know, there was a big pushback, obviously, from small and large businesses. They had to walk back on a lot of their ideas that they wanted to do uh, at that time uh, in, the, in the way of tax reform for businesses. Uh, do you see and, or anticipate that you're going to see something like that again in this budget? Well, certainly we hope not to the degree. At this point, we're still asking them to kind of clean up the mess uh, from that budget a couple of years ago and asking them to consider, consider grandfathering passive investments. So those businesses that have already made their plans and have already have um, investments that have been accumulating, that those are exempt from this tax uh, changes. And we're also asking them to consider exempting spouses from some of the changes that they made too for income splitting. We really think that most Canadian businesses are run as quote-unquote mom-and-pop shops. And so that's one way to recognize the efforts that a partner or a spouse puts into the business, even though they may not be in the business every day. 
do they get that? They understand exactly what what goes on in small businesses. I mean, you know, because we've we've talked to a number of people, of course, that were impacted by those policies. Uh, well, starting from as soon as that budget was announced a couple of years ago now. And and they didn't seem to get it. The, the the government members we talked to didn't seem to understand that. Look at the, you know, there's no retirement savings plan for people that own small businesses more often than not. So they need that nest egg, and the government uh, just didn't seem to understand that that was such an important part of small businesses not just succeeding but continuing to to carry on for years and years and years. Well, and that's exactly it. I think there is some frustration amongst business owners. I think some MPs have, have uh, woken up to the, the sort of logic behind some of these asks and these requests. But I know many business owners feel frustrated by the way things were, uh, were communicated and the lack of understanding displayed by, uh, by the government uh, in terms of dealing with this issue and really trying, if they really do care about the middle class and they think small business is part of that middle class, then they need to rethink some of these policies that are not addressing making sure business owners stay uh, afloat for frankly, and also have money to retire on. You talked about skill shortage. Let's talk a little bit about that and the, and the impact a budget can have on that. Certainly. I think at this time, it's, it's, you know, we're in a tricky place in the economy where business owners are, are telling us that they've got job vacancies, they can't fill them. We have a shortage of all kinds of labor, not just skilled, technical uh, labor, but also you know, unskilled or what we call semi-skilled. So we're looking to see recognition of the work that small business owners do when they train individuals, often for the first time, or you know, sometimes business owners are only getting people who've worked in one or two jobs prior to coming to that job. And so we really want to see some return on the investment that business owners invest in small biz- in, uh, in employees. And so some training credits or a reduction of the uh, employment insurance premiums that small business owners pay. One of the, the debatable issues that, that just seems to always come up in situations like that is, is, is who gets those benefits? Uh, you know, and I used the phrase a second ago, but putting cash and putting money into the, into the pockets of consumers. Uh, from your standpoint, though, Monique, I, I mean, on behalf of the, the, the Federation of Independent Businesses, uh, you want those consumers to spend that money, not necessarily to just put it away in, in savings accounts, don't you? That's correct, and we never really know. That's a you know that's often a message or a refrain that's shared by government is that you know if we're giving individuals more money, then they'll spend it in businesses. Well, we don't always know that's the case. People are paying down debt, they're investing in other issues or other um, things that are important to their families. So it's it's always tricky to know how people are going to spend their money. And certainly for us, uh, involving the small business owner in that package is a really critical piece for us, and not necessarily just passing the money on to the employee. What about home ownership? That's, a, again, become, uh, in some places in this country, a crisis, uh, it is, well, especially in some places like Vancouver. But we're feeling it, I think, here in southern Ontario as well. How can the government do anything here? How can the government uh, initiate uh, some sort of a program that's going to make housing more affordable? Well, I think certainly while that's not really in our wheelhouse, we do have a number of business owners that work from home and, and home ownership, especially if you've never bought a home, is, as we've been hearing loud and clear across the country, becoming a bit of an issue. So uh, certainly we, we're, we would welcome measures that government brings in to help address that. So obviously that's something I, I'm thinking the minister is going to be discussing. And it's a balancing act, really, isn't it, to try to find uh, something that's going to be good for consumers, but at the same time, uh, you know, small businesses. Because obviously, you know, we want the small businesses to grow. I mean, I, that's one of the mantras, of course, that this is the backbone of, of the economy. And uh, there has been some criticism right now that Mr. Morneau doesn't seem to understand exactly how to keep that business and that, those small businesses moving. 
Well, we certainly have, you know, done our best to give him some ideas for that. Uh, it's been, you know, we know that small businesses contribute to 98, uh, or sorry, uh, they employ 98% of Canadians and contribute to nearly half of Canada's GDP. So certainly uh, we have, we know the, the facts are there that uh, small businesses are at the backbone of the economy. But when you believe that and you say that, then your measures need to follow that. And so we'll certainly be looking to a tomorrow's budget as, as potentially uh, turning the boat around on some of these issues. Okay, so uh, when we finish this conversation, Monique, and uh, as soon as you hang up the phone, the phone rings again in your office, and it's, it's Bill Morneau, and he says, look, Monique, I just heard you with Bill Kelly. Uh, what's this one thing that you can offer and that, uh, right now to, in the way of advice to Mr. Morneau to say, look, it, this is what we need. This is right at the top of our list. Well, certainly uh, I would be thrilled if that happened, uh, Bill, and I'll certainly keep you posted <laughs> if it does. But uh, I think at this point we really need to address the shortage of skilled labor and certainly uh, look at reducing the impact of uh, the CPP increases in carbon taxes. Those would be, I know he only asked me for one, but those would be sort of my one-two punch if well, I One and one A there. Okay, that, that sounds about reasonable, too. Let's, let's talk about the skilled shortage, though, and you want to talk about training, and, and obviously that's a very expensive endeavor. Uh, how do you approach something like that? How do you envision a program that, that actually is going to be beneficial to small businesses so they have that labor pool. Certainly. Well, we've got a number of suggestions over the years as the economy has waxed and waned to try and deal with this. One of the options is to recognize the efforts that small business owners make for on-the-job informal training. So this is not the kind of training where you go away to a course for a few weeks and then come back. You get a certificate saying you passed or you didn't. This is the kind of training that happens when a business owner has to pull someone else off the line, for example, or reduce the productivity of one employee to train a new person. And so we're really trying to get at how do you recognize the efforts that small business owners have made there. And one way is to um, come up with a a training tax credit. So to, uh, we've suggested perhaps reducing the um, employment insurance premiums that business owners pay because they have to pay 1.4 times the amount as employees only pay, pay one, uh, one time, obviously. Um, we've also asked them to consider partnering with organizations such as ours to um, make sure that um, the more informal training is recognized. And so not necessarily training that has come from a university or from a recognized educational institution, but to get at online training, for example, or training that that uh, may be only offered within a specific sector. So we have some ideas, and we've certainly offered those to the government. And, and obviously, there's another concern here, too, and it's, it's retraining. I mean, we can talk about training for a particular job, but what we're seeing here in, in the uh, economy here in Ontario for the last number of years, of course, is with the, the evolution that's happening, for instance, in manufacturing. You've seen people that are 35, 40 years old all of a sudden uh, looking for work and, and with one skill set that they think may not be marketable right now. How do, how do we approach retraining programs? I think that you've really uh, hit the nail on the head and certainly looking at, it's really hard to predict the skill set that's going to be needed, but when you do have that information, supporting those employees that are going through transition is really critical. And that can be in the form of an education credit. It can also be to help other businesses in the area um, look at taking on those individuals who are seeking retraining and then recognizing that effort. Um, Certainly working with local industry associations or um, uh, uh, local sector sectoral organizations where they've already addressed some of these issues. And of course, we really are big fans of colleges and polytechnics. Those kinds of institutions tend to have their finger on the pulse a bit more than universities do. And so we would support any initiatives that would help with retraining for those uh, those schools or for our educational institutions as well. Well, and we've got Mohawk College here in Hamilton, of course, which as I recall is still the number one skills trades uh, community college in Ontario. 
uh, has a great track record and a great success record. But I, I always I wonder about that aspect of it. I know the older worker because uh, it's a lot more difficult for them to to go and get retrained because let's face it, a lot of them have financial responsibilities. They, they may have mortgages and things of this nature, uh, and you can't just say, okay, I'm going to drop everything and go back to school. There's, there's got to be some balance there, doesn't there? Absolutely. And that's where, uh, you know, financial support from the government can be of help, but also looking at it in a really holistic perspective and making sure that that person is retraining for a job that is available and ready for them. And so is there some matching that can happen with a small business owner, for example, where they then, you know, take on the employee, they understand that they'll be um, getting some retraining and support through a local polytechnic or college, and then they come back retrained and ready to go. So I think making sure that we've got the whole path sorted out before an individual just, uh, you know, necessarily says, I'm going to take two years off and go and hope this is the right certificate or degree program for me. I think we have enough labor market information that we can predict that kind of thing, so we just need to make sure all the pieces of the puzzle are working together. Well, there have been programs in the past where, where governments have actually, uh, I guess, certainly subsidized some of the wages for new employees. I mean, at an entry level, I guess that might be a little easier to do. But, uh, you know, extending that so that you've got people that are looking for retraining jobs, uh, it might make things an awful lot easier on the employer if they knew that they were going to get some government help to, uh, to assist in, in those wages uh, as opposed to, you know, simply saying, look, it's all or nothing. That's right, and that gets back at that informal on-the-job training I was mentioning earlier. It's really hard to measure that, but it's a really important piece of how individual Canadians are necessarily trained up when they join a new um, organization or they start a new role somewhere. So certainly it's been, uh, it's been on our long list of suggestions, and we know that amounts to quite a bit. Our members have told us they invest around $9 billion a year in informal on-the-job training, and that was data from a few years ago, so it's probably a bit more now. That's a huge chunk of the economy that's, that's happening, and so some recognition from the federal government on that and being a bit broader in terms of how they measure that so that you don't, as I said, need to necessarily prove to the government that you sent an employee away to a course uh, would be welcome, I think, by small businesses. Well, we'll find out tomorrow afternoon uh, whether or not they've been listening and uh, if they're going to enact any of these stuff, things or other. Uh, Monique, thank you so much. Great having you on the program today. Thanks for the time. Thanks to you, Bill. Take care. Monique Moreau, of course, uh, with uh, the Canadian Federation of Independent Businesses. And, and that's one voice. I mean, there are many other organizations, of course, that uh, speak to finance ministers uh, in the days and hours, I guess, before these budgets. But uh, it's going to be critical, obviously, uh, heading into the election to see if they check off some of those boxes that Monique and others have been talking about. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.